Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Adam Dorsey, a psychologist in Silicon Valley and the host of Super Psyched, a podcast dedicated to supercharging your life. Each episode contains fun, high-quality interviews with experts looking at psychology from all angles. Super Psyched is your tool to get more of what you want in your life and less of what you don't. Last month, my 14-year-old son came home from school with a book in hand and excitedly said, Dad, you've got to read this book. My son has never said anything like this to me before, and I was immediately intrigued. I picked up the book, a graphic novel, and it took me in immediately. It was engrossing and profound. It was at times hilarious and at other times utterly heartbreaking. Overall, it was a superbly relatable human story that describes a period in the life of an American-born Chinese boy that was true to his experience and that simultaneously opens a door to a Chinese mythical world. The author is Jean Luanyang, and I was thrilled to learn that his New York Times best-selling, award-winning, and critically acclaimed book, American-Born Chinese, has been made into an eight-part miniseries on Disney+. The miniseries has an all-star lineup, the likes of which blows my mind. The cast includes Academy Award winners Michelle Yeoh and Kehui Kwan, also known as Jonathan Kekwan, and two of my favorite comedians, Ronnie Chang and Jimmy O. Yang. I cannot even get over this. And throughout this interview, you'll get to learn from Gene, who is a cool, kind, and deep-thinking person. I'm confident you will appreciate him as much as I have. So I'm releasing this episode to coincide with Chinese New Year. A hearty Gung Hei Fat Choi to all who celebrate. And what a great way to celebrate the Year of the Dragon by listening to Gene share his story and the story behind the story of American-born Chinese. Gene Luanyang, a hearty welcome to Super Psyched. Thank you so much, Adam. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to have you. And you came about because my 14-year-old son said, Dad, Dad, you've got to read this book, which he has said to me so far zero times <laughs> in his life. So I read American-born Chinese in basically one sitting because you cannot put this thing down. And he was right. It's one of the best things I've ever read. In fact, it was somewhat reminiscent of Mouse by Art Spiegelman, in which yeah. you know, very serious matter is conveyed with some levity. And we're going to get into the graphic novel and comics because it gave a great TED Talk around that topic. But I'm going to read a couple of the reviews you received from the major press. The New York Times said that the art blends the clean lines of anime with a bold American palette. Yang is equally adept at depicting a high school cafeteria and the Monkey King that's uh, a mythic place. The Monkey King's fantastical realm. You got shout outs from the Miami Herald, from Booklist. San Francisco Chronicle said something that I totally agree with. One of the most powerful and entertaining works of literature to be published this year. I'm so happy to be with you, man. Thank you, man. Thank you, Adam. And thank you for all those nice things. And thanks to your son. Thanks to your son for advertising my book to you. <laughs> he did to think that of all of the books that he's read, this is the one that he said, dad, you must read it. 
And I had no idea where it was going. I had no idea what it would become. I'm kind of at a loss for words. And then this morning, as I was preparing for the interview, I discover that it's an eight-part miniseries on Disney starring the likes of Ronnie Chang, who I think is one of the most important human beings living today. Daily Show correspondent, a comedian, funny, brilliant. He was really, really prominent in my mind during some of the hate crimes that were transpiring mm. around the Chinese. He, he gave some really important stuff. And my gosh, you got Academy Award winner Michelle Yeoh. Come yeah. on, are you kidding me right now? Yeah, it was, it was a very surreal experience. You got a season so far. We're waiting to hear about season two, but we have eight episodes of season one out on Disney Plus right now. And it was released in May. They shot it last year. I got to visit the set a few times. I got to hang out with movie stars. It was like really, really weird. Now, I have to say the show is actually very different from the book on, on purpose. We talked very early on when we were developing the show that we wanted it to be, we were hoping to have the same heart, but in a different form. I hope that comes through. But And obviously they had to change things from the book. Was that at all painful for you? No, actually, like, I'm not going to name any names, but there are certain movies that adaptations of graphic novels that I just don't like. And the reason why I don't like them is because I think they're maybe a little bit too faithful. Because one of my arguments is different media have different strengths. And if you take one story and you move it from one medium to another, the story actually has to change in order to take advantage of the strengths of whatever medium you're moving it into, you know? Um, So we talked about that a lot. Yeah, we talked about that a lot. And And we also talked about how You know, I think it would be a little bit closer to the book had we adapted it as a movie, but because we adapted it as a television show, the structure is very different. So the whole thing had to be changed. That totally makes sense. Well, we're going to geek out to that a little bit more. Let's talk about Gene the person. I know a bit about you. You and I come from, in many ways, the same place, Saratoga, California. And just wondering if you could share a little bit with my listeners about where you're from, where your parents are from, and what may have caused you to give birth to such a fine work of literature. So I was born and raised in the Bay Area. My mom was born in mainland China, my dad in Taiwan. My mom's family left China just as the communists were coming into power because my grandfather worked for the nationalist government. So my mom... Cultural revolution here. Yeah, absolutely. Around then. So my mom grew up mostly in Hong Kong and Taiwan. And then both my parents came to the United States for graduate school. So they met on the campus of San Jose State University, fell in love, got married. They had me. When I was born, our family was living in Alameda, but eventually we made our way back to the South Bay. And I spent most of my childhood in San Jose and then Saratoga. That's wild. And one of the funny things that you say in the book is that one of the reasons your mom chose your dad was because he had very thick glasses, which meant he read a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And it wasn't just my mom. I grew up in a Chinese Catholic church, and I heard that from a lot of women at this church. I mean, maybe this gets too into the weeds. Do you think that Chinese American boys specifically, at least of my generation, we grew up with bad romantic advice in our heads? You know, like we grew up in this paradigm where like our parents would tell us, you do great at school, you get a good job and the girls will come. That's what that my grandma is... said to me too. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, <same thing. laughs> but that's not really true in America, right? Maybe in the old world, but that's not true here. I don't think that's true here. That's really funny. So as a boy, did you look at them kind of askance and say that's not going to fly here? Or did you try to follow it to the letter? I was a decent student, but I was not a great student. I was not the best student. So pretty early on, I think I did rebel against that advice. But it wasn't because I didn't think it was true. It was because I didn't think I could fulfill it. I have a younger brother. He's four years younger than me. And he is a stellar student. He was like (laughs) at the top of his class all the way through school. He's a doctor now. And he's just like 4.8 billion GPA, that kind of kid. 
And I was not like that. So I think I rebelled against that advice because I couldn't do it. <laughs> Why can't you be like your younger brother? <laughs> <laughs> I know. Totally. Totally. And it wasn't the same. We had like cousins that were like that. Man, I must have been just really brutal in a way. So let's talk about what compelled you to write American Born Chinese. How did you come on? I'm almost speechless. How did you do this? It's a nonfiction book, but it really pulls pretty heavily from my own childhood. The community that I grew up in, Saratoga, California, nowadays it's very heavily Asian American, right? I visited the campus maybe 10 years ago, and at that point it was like 80 or 90% Asian American. But when I was growing up, like when we first moved into Saratoga, it was a predominantly white area. Right. Like specifically white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, right? Like as waspy as you could get. And there were so few Asian Americans in the area that my mom was actually able to go to the school, ask for the addresses of the other Chinese families. And then one weekend, we made house calls. There were only two other families there. So we went and visited them and introduced ourselves to them. So nowadays, it would be really weird to do that. But back then, because there were so few of us, that was a thing that we could do. I would say that during my childhood, the transition happened. That community went from being a predominantly white neighborhood to a much more Asian neighborhood. You know, by the time I was in high school, we were still a minority, but there were more of us there. And and I do think that sort of a change sometimes comes with a lot of tension. So I think some of what I talk about in the book comes from that tension, like growing up in that tension. Right. And one of the ways that your mom in the TV show, not quite in the graphic novel, says we're not water skiing people. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. uh, I really resonated with that because that's kind of the way I grew up. My Mm -hmm. family grew up in a whitish neighborhood and I felt othered. We were not water skiing people. We were not skiers at all. And so I really get that. And even though my skin blends I know I'm not from that. So it was published in 2021. And it was just in the midst of COVID, in the midst of hate crimes against Asian Americans. I did an interview with Dr. Sherry Wang from Santa Clara University, and she really gave some insight into it. I was wondering, was that a fortunate coincidence? Was that an unfortunate coincidence that it came out at that time? Okay, so the 2021 edition is the 15th anniversary edition, actually. So the original edition came out in 2006. (laughs) But I do have to say, like, one of the things that's different in the 15th anniversary edition is I wrote an afterword in there that wasn't in the original. And when I wrote that afterword, it was before the pandemic had happened. And then it comes out during the pandemic. Can you drop a little bit about what you wrote in the afterword? Yeah, sure, sure. Since the book first came out in 2006, I have had the opportunity to go to different communities, like different school and library communities to talk about the themes of the book. And what I found is afterwards, I'll do a signing and these kids will come up to me and a lot of them will tell me their own stories and how they emotionally connected to the book. And I think that's one of the most gratifying things for an author to experience. What I found is many of these kids who connected with the book, they weren't Asian American. And and it seemed like a lot of them were immigrants' kids, but their parents didn't necessarily come from the same place that my parents came from. So it seemed like all the details were different. Like the language that they spoke was different. The place of worship that they went to was different. Mm -hmm. The clothes that they wore on holidays was different. But then the underlying emotions were all the same. The feeling of being an outsider, of not feeling like you fit in, the feeling of having to move from one world to another whenever you went from home to school, having to learn two or more sets of cultural expectations, all of that was the same. And what I realized was that the outsider experience is so common that it can actually be a way for people to bond with each other. It's almost like this really ironic thing, right? Like your experience of being an outsider when you're a kid, when you become an adult, when you become a little bit older, it actually becomes a way for you to create a connection with somebody else. 
Unequivocally. And as a psychologist in which my profession, so many professions have connection as a primary element of the job, but it's been so important. I think that having these different reference points allows some cognitive flexibility. And I'm sure it does for you. I was wondering, growing up as you did, did you feel like you were of two cultures, of neither culture? Like, how did you feel growing yeah. up? Did you feel like you were yeah. of not American enough to be American, not Chinese enough to be Chinese, or perhaps enough of each to be both? Oh, it was definitely on the not enough side. <laughs> I mean, even the term of American-born Chinese, that's a term that Chinese immigrants often call their own kids. And sometimes it's used as a term of affection, but sometimes it's used as a pejorative. Like, oh, these American-born Chinese, they don't really know our culture. They don't really speak right. They don't really know how to eat, all those sorts of things. So I think for a lot of Asian Americans and maybe immigrants, kids in general, I think we feel like we're not enough to belong in either our parents' culture or the culture that we find ourselves growing up in. And what were some of the challenges that presented and what were some of the gifts that might have even been the most? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that cultural expectation thing was a challenge for sure. Like figuring out what the norms were. Like first realizing that the norms were different. Like the norms at home, at church are different from the norms at school, right? Like at home and at church, we would never, ever call an adult by their first name. But then when we hung out with our school friends and their parents, their parents would ask us to call them by their first names. And I remember just feeling really weirded out that. And it took me a little while to wrap my head around that. Kids always established a status hierarchy of some kind. 100%. And I think the status hierarchy at school works very differently from the status hierarchy at home or at Chinese school or at church. One thing I remember, especially in junior high, was... At school, I would have a hard time talking to girls. I would have a really, really hard time talking to girls. But then at Chinese school, <laughs> I could talk to those same girls. It was like this really weird thing. And when I was a kid, I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure out why I felt so nervous at school. But I did it at Chinese school. Or I didn't at church. Can you explain that chasm now? I'm guessing it yeah, yeah. mattered so much. I do think that, that part of it was being in a majority Asian environment, right? Like your Asian-ness, my Asian-ness mattered in a way at school that didn't at church or at Chinese school. It was almost like a deficit that I had to make up for that was not there in those other contexts. And you felt a little bit behind the eight ball in some ways when you were in the whiter context, but when you were in a context that was more of your people, so to speak. Yeah. It was like, okay, I feel like I'm one of these people. Yeah, sure, sure. Stronger here. Sure, absolutely. You have to say that, like, looking back, especially in my teenage years, I think I felt comfortable around people who were. I mean, it wasn't just Asian Americans, right? It, it was almost like if something made you weird, <laughs> if something made you not fit, it was easier for me to connect with you. Like one of my best friends in high school, he was like this big blonde kid, like really good looking. Looks wise, it seems like he should fit in, but he was a German exchange student, which made him really weird. And so we were very close to each other, even though we were from two different cultural backgrounds. And I think we bonded because we both felt excluded in some way. And to see the guy with the boogers in the story. <laughs> he's not. He's not. No, he's not the other he's okay. much nicer than that kid. <laughs> got it. Got it. Got it. Actually, that makes a lot of sense uh, <laughs> now that you say it. So one of the things that you speak about in your TED talk that made me just really resonated was you talked about correlation is not causation. And you're doing that in the sense that all prisoners read comic books and yet all people read comic books. But somehow some erroneous psychologist determined that Comic books lead to prison and therefore they should be banned. And it's kind of really been a perma stain on comic books and graphic novels. 
I'm really delighted that this is an art form that is beginning to take off in the way it is. I think for a lot of children, I have ADHD and uh, dyslexia. And for me to be able to see while reading something that could be easily disparaged, oh, you like pictures in your stories. Yes, I like pictures in my stories. It really does. If a picture is worth a thousand words, well, I get a thousand plus words for each frame. And you really did that. What would you like if you were to be a spokesperson on behalf of this medium? What would you want the public to know? I mean, there are so many things about comics that I really, really love. Maybe one of my favorite aspects of comics is that the dividing line between who is an amateur and who is a pro is just very, very blurry. It's very blurry. Like who's a reader and who's a creator? That line is very blurry. All you really need to do is sit down and write and draw a comic book, right? And I would even argue that illustration and comic book art are related, but they're two different art forms. So you can be an excellent illustrator, but really terrible at making comics. And then the reverse can be true as well. You could be not the best artist in the world, but still make really amazing, compelling comics. So anybody really can make a comic book. And I, and I do think that speaks to the history of comics. Like very early on, a lot of the people that we consider greats now were the children of immigrants. They're specifically the children of Jewish immigrants from Europe. Avengers and Captain America, X-Men, Spider-Man, they were all created by these children of Jewish immigrants. So they were basically outsiders, and they were from these deep, like really poor families, you know, very poor areas. They had a hard time finding a place to express themselves, but they could do it in comics because that dividing line between who's a reader and who's a creator is very, very easy to cross. That's one of my favorite things about the medium. I think that's brilliant. And you're describing a population that is bereft, marginalized, and trying to find its power. And no surprise, Superman, whose name is Kal-El, uh-huh. you know, that's a Hebrew word yep. uh, or, <laughs> or a Hebrew name. And that's really, really funny that you bring that up. When did you realize this was something you could do? It was in fifth grade. So fifth grade was when I bought my very first comic book. It was actually a Superman comic. It was DC Comics Presents number 57, starring Superman and the Atomic Knights. I bought it from, I think it was a Crown Books at my local mall. Yeah, yeah. And in the El Paseo de Saratoga. El Paseo, that's right. (laughs) Exactly. It was the Crown Books in El Paseo. And eventually I found out that there was a comic shop in that same mall called Red Planet Comics. I remember that place. Yeah, yeah. So I would try to go anytime I could. And pretty soon after that, one of my best friends in fifth grade was a kid named Jeremy Kuniyoshi, half Jewish, half Japanese. And he'd been reading comics since he could read. Like by the time he was in fifth grade, he had like, I don't know, several long boxes of comics in his house. And we started making comic books together. His mom was super supportive. We would come up with the stories. I would do the pencils and he would do the inks. And then his mom would take our pages, take them to work with her, run off copies, and then we'd sell them. We'd sell them to our our friends at school. So you were pro. You sold. You made money. We made money. We made like $8. It was awesome. Hey, you were a pro at a very young age. (laughs) That's right. I mean, that's the thing about comics. It's anybody can do that. Any kid who has a story in them who just needs some time to draw, can do that, can make a comic and sell it to his friends or her friends. And you did all the drawings in this book. Yeah, yeah. In fifth grade, I did the pencils. American Born Chinese. Oh, in American Born Chinese, I did. Yeah, I did all the drawings, but the colors are handled by somebody else. The colors are actually done by a friend of mine named Lark Pian. My son, from the mouth of babes, comes the truth. You have to buy this book. You have to sit down and read it and possibly reread and reread it. It is so good. And the drawings are so killer can't believe you actually drew those. 
I oh, mean, thank you. Like, Adam, that's nice of you to say. <laughs> it's just, just amazing. Amazing. So I'm thinking your mom was from mainland China. Your dad was from Taiwan. I'm sure that they were not overjoyed when their Berkeley educated son decides, hey, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to become a teacher and an illustrated. They were not happy at all. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I should say this. I should say that my mom was a little more supportive. My mom has always had artistic inclinations herself. So she understood. And her advice to me was like, as long as you have health insurance, just make sure you have <laughs> Okay. My dad was really unhappy. I remember telling him I had a programming job for a little bit right after college. I was going to leave my coder job and I was going to teach high school and I was going to focus on comics. He just, he didn't say anything, but he just like stood up and walked out of the room. He was not happy at all. (laughs) When I hear about artists making it, like I remember Jimmy Fallon famously said he had literally no plan B, his plan. And he told his vocational counselor was to get onto Saturday Night Live. And what's your plan B? There is no plan B. And I'm wondering, as you were leaving coding, as you were considering what you really loved, you know, you may be familiar with this concept, the Ikigai, there are four overlapping circles. And in this Venn diagram of sorts, it's what you love, what you're good at, what the world Mm -hmm. needs and what will pay. And Mm -hmm. in that center of those four overlapping circles is you. You've found a way to make all of those things work. And 3,500 people have given it a Mm 4.5 average on Amazon. And whoever gave it four stars instead of five, I would like to speak to them (laughs) immediately, if not sooner, and ask them, what were you thinking? How did it not get a five? But that's beside the point. It's clearly a hit. And what point did you realize, hey, this is what I'm going to do? I mean, it took a while. So When I made the decision to leave coding and become a high school teacher and do comics, I was not planning on making a full-time living at comic books because I didn't think it was possible at the time. In the 90s, American comics were not doing very well. Like nowadays, Marvel is this powerhouse. But back in the 90s, they had declared bankruptcy. Some people were predicting that Marvel was going to blink out of existence. And if it did, it would take most of the comic shops in America with it because most comic shops really rely on Marvel product. And I would go to these comic book conventions and nobody would go. It's not like now where you have to buy your tickets months in advance. It was like a ghost town. So I was not expecting to be able to make a full-time living at comics. Like it was more than a hobby. I thought of it as an avocation or maybe a, a fulfilling of a calling, but I wasn't expecting to make money. So I hung out with a group of other cartoonists who all had kind of the same mindset. We all love comics. We wanted to make comics. We were not totally expecting to be able to make a living at comics, but we would just kind of push each other to do this pretty regularly. And I did that for years, even after American More Chinese came out. I was a high school teacher. My plan was to be a high school teacher as my career for the rest of my working life. But after American More Chinese came out, I went part-time at my teaching gig. So we were on a block schedule. I would be on campus teaching one day, and the next day I would be at home making comics. So I lived like that for, I don't know, almost a decade. What pushed me out was actually getting a call from DC Comics. I got a call from DC Comics. They offered me the chance to write Superman. So I left. Wait, hold up. What are you talking about? (laughs) Wait. Yeah. In 2015, that's when I left teaching. I see. Um, But DC Comics says, hey, Gene, we think you're good. Will you cast Superman? Yeah, well, just right. Just right. I didn't do the drawing. I only did the writing. Wrote 10 issues of Superman. I've been working with DC Comics on and off ever since then. Yeah, so I did 10 issues of Superman. They asked me to create a brand new character called the new Superman, who's like a 17-year-old Chinese kid who gets some of Superman's powers. And I did 24 issues of that. More recently, I did a book for them called Monkey Prince, which is a brand new superhero in the DC universe. So I've been working with them for a while. 
That's been fun. You just clearly don't know your credits. Can you share them with my listeners? Like, what else have you been doing? I mean, this is... Oh, sure, sure. So I do some books that are creator-owned, like American Born Chinese, which where I come up with a story and I come up with the world and the characters and all that. So I did a book called Boxers and Saints after American Born Chinese, which is about the Boxer Rebellion, a war that was fought in Chinese soil in the year 1900. And then I did do a book about basketball called Dragon Hoops. I followed a high school team out of Oakland for a season, and I did a book about them. I did a graphic novel about them. And then on the other side, where I'm working with other people's IP, I did Superman and a few other characters for DC Comics. And then for Marvel, I did a run on Shang-Chi, which is their Kung Fu superhero. And then I did the comics continuation of Avatar The Last Airbender. Do you know that show? Sure. We did a series of graphic novels that's sort of like a season four for the show. And that's still going now with an amazing art team. Amazing creative team, but I only did the first five volumes for that. And right now I'm working on comics tie-in for a video game called Clash of Clans. It's like this mobile game that's really popular. Absolutely. Wow. So, And this is your, you're doing this type of work full time. Yeah, I'm full time now. I've been full time almost eight years now. Congratulations. And what an auspicious oh. number for the Chinese culture. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> You've got four children. Yep. And they're doing their thing. When you clearly made it, may I ask, is your father still with us? Yes. Yeah, he is. Thank goodness. I mean, he's a warrior. He's a warrior. So I don't know. He's still an Asian dad. He's definitely happy for me. But he'll ask whether I'm hitting my deadlines or not. (laughs) I remember calling him after we signed the deal with Disney. Uh-huh. that Disney was going to adapt American More Chinese into a television show. And I told him, he sighs, he goes, ah, so did that mean that you'll never be able to make it into a motion picture? <laughs> <laughs> he somehow was able to yes. find the cloud around all of the silver. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. He's a worrier. Do you have like a Google translator in your head? It's like, okay, this is just dad worrying and being incredulous. Like, how do you... How yeah, do you, yeah. You don't take it on. Yeah, I try to now. I mean... I'm a dad myself, so I get how that worry works now. And I also think there's something very immigrant about that, right? Where you're always sort of expecting the worst. It's hard for you to expect the best. Absolutely. Yeah. And kind of white knuckling it the entire way, even if smashing success comes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's just hard for my dad to take good news at face value. Yeah, there's got to be something bad just around the corner. And yeah, yeah, there's an old joke about a Jewish immigrant from Russia who moves into New York and her son says, how is it going? And she says, it's quiet. It's too quiet, <laughs> which means that she's just waiting for the other shoe to drop. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that is really part of the immigrant story. And it's interesting yeah. how ostensibly kind of a Jewish tale of Superman has morphed into a Chinese narrative. And it speaks really to the story of the recent immigrant, it sounds like. like yeah. From inferior to superior in many ways. Um, yeah. To use Adler, who was one of the early proponents of psychoanalysis in around the 30s, talked about going from inferiority to superiority and it's kind of a pendulum movement. And mm-hmm. Superman really is a good depiction of that. And mm-hmm. while still having kryptonite, still having a weakness somewhere. Yeah. An Achilles yeah. heel of sorts. Let's talk a little bit about American born Chinese. I loved all of the characters. I'm guessing Jin is largely you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pulled pretty heavily from my own life to write Jin's story. Yeah. And do you have a favorite character in the book? I mean, I am partial to Monkey King because I grew up with the stories. My mom used to tell me Monkey King stories at bedtime. So whenever I think about the Monkey King, I think about my time with her. Yeah. And I think I told you that for me, Wei Chen is just so cool to me because he has so much integrity and there is no 
cynicism and Mm -hmm. he's very what you see is what you get and he's not playing games he's just real and Mm -hmm. he's about honor and respect and yeah it's really cool and of course that doesn't fly amongst his contemporaries immediately i also noticed that apparently that mythology of, of the monkey king is real chinese mythology yeah that's right So the Monkey King story was first written down about 500 years ago in this novel called Journey to the West. It's considered a classic in Chinese culture. You know, the way we English speakers would think of the works of Shakespeare, that's how the Chinese think of Journey to the West. Most people believe that it was probably an oral tradition before it was written down. So it's a really, really old story. And pretty much every Chinese kid, regardless of where on the world you're actually growing up, has heard of the Monkey King, has grown up with those stories. As you're talking about the Monkey King, I find myself thinking of Hanuman, the Hindu, the monkey warrior. Is there any relationship with... Yeah, they think that Monkey King is probably evolved from Hanuman stories. The Monkey King stories probably evolved from Hanuman stories. What were you hoping the readers would glean from this book? Well, you know, in some ways, it was me working things out that had bugged me since I was a kid. And when I started American Born Chinese, this is before I had a publisher. I was still working as a teacher and I was just drawing this at night and on weekends. And the way I would distribute it was I would Xerox copy issues. I would take them to local conventions and I'd sell them by hand. So at the end of the day, I'd sell maybe 20 copies of every issue. So when you're working at that level, you know most of the people who are reading your story, right? Like most of the people who were reading American Born Chinese at that point were my cartoonist friends and we would just do these trades. So at that time, I would think that I really just wanted to connect with the reader. It's that same, like I wanted to share my outsider's experience and connect with them in some way. Like I knew them personally, I knew most of them personally. So I just wanted to share my story with them and then maybe hear their story in return. Got it. I may be reading way into it, but I noticed that the final meeting place between Jin and Wei Chin, if I'm allowed to say this, takes place in a restaurant whose address is 490. Yeah. It struck me as numerically significant based on my understanding of Asian numerology. I'm wondering if I'm reading too into it. I actually pulled from the Bible for that. It's seven times 70, which is the number of forgiveness in the New Testament. So I thought they're forgiving each other in the cafe. So then the name of the cafe should reflect forgiveness in some way. And the look of that cafe is actually based on a real cafe that was in Oakland. It's closed down, but it was around in the 90s and early 2000s. That was called ABC Cafe. And this is very, very strange restaurant, right, where they would serve American style food, like bacon and eggs, or like spaghetti or hamburgers, but they would make it with Asian ingredients. So everything tasted a little bit off to the American palate. What I heard about that place was that it's actually based on these American style cafes in Taiwan, you know, where they would make American style food, but they would use Asian ingredients. So everything would taste a little bit off. And then when Taiwanese students came to America, they would taste actual American food and just would taste wrong to them because it's not the kind of American food that they grew up with. So this restaurant opened specifically to cater to that population. So my friends and I, like my American born Chinese friends and I in college, we would go there all the time. We thought it was so cool, right? It was like a bowl of spaghetti, but it would taste a little bit different from the normal spaghetti that you would get in the dorms. And what's so funny is in Japan, the same thing. 
Mm. Get spaghetti. Sometimes it will taste somewhat like Italian or American spaghetti, but sometimes it'll have fish eggs in it. Sometimes different ingredients, sometimes an omelet or other things that would eat in the United States would be, so to speak, off, as you'd say, except for me, it was totally on because it was just maybe better. It was yeah, yeah, yeah. so delicious. And yeah. I long for Japanese food and Japanese versions of other countries' food with a Japanese stamp. So it sounds like Taiwan has a tradition of doing yeah, it. I think so. And the ABC and just your intentionality in this book. In every frame, there's probably some Easter egg, like the 490, as you just said, came from the New Testament around forgiveness. I'm guessing there are Easter eggs throughout the book. And I'm just wondering, would you ever even consider as an addendum getting into some of the Easter eggs? Yeah, that would be fun to do. Yeah, maybe I should do that as a project. You have to say, though, you know, I did that book so long ago, I probably forgot a lot of the stuff (laughs) that my 20 and 30 year old self was putting in that book. Obviously, it wasn't a linear experience going from fifth grader with Jeremy all the way to massive success. Let's talk about the failures, the rejections along the way, the moments where you felt so kicked in the nuts, where you were thinking to yourself, what am I doing? There were definitely times when I thought about quitting. Before American Mortenies, I did a comic called Gordon Yamamoto and the King of the Geeks. It's like this weird <laughs> sci-fi story about a kid who gets a spaceship stuck in his nose, you know, and he's <laughs> oh friends with the alien that's driving the ship. And I self-published it. After I self-published it, I wanted to get a publisher to do a graphic novel collection of the self-published stories, right? And I sent out a bunch of submissions and I got rejected from all but one of them. All but one rejected me. And I waited for a very long time, actually. Like, I sent all these out. I waited a year. I had heard from all of them except for the single publisher. And by the end of that year, I thought that publisher just didn't like it so much they didn't spend the time to tell me no. And I ended up hearing from that publisher like three years later, and they agreed to publish it. But for a very long time, I just thought that working with a publisher was kind of off the table for me. It just wasn't going to happen, that I would have to keep self-publishing. Do you think that with comics, because so much of it is do-it-yourself, there's this real tradition of taking things in your own hands. I think that gives you a sense of empowerment that can kick you out of that feeling of failure. There's always something that you can do. Like You never have to wait for a gatekeeper to say yes. Like You can submit to the gatekeepers, but if they turn you down, there's still a plan B that you can follow. That's so powerful. And that idea of feeling so dejected and rejected and even subscribing to the belief that, yeah, getting a traditional publisher is off the table for me only to find out three years later, to be specific, 1100 days later of waiting that you were welcomed in. It's a long game. And it's a long game. I think about one of my previous guests who really showed me so much. She wrote a book called The Long Game. She's a professor at Duke University and I believe Columbia these days, one of the top 50 business thinkers in the world, Dory Clark. And she describes, you just don't know which thing is going to hit, but you need to keep generating. And did you experience that? Did you think that maybe this one will hit, but it didn't? And the one that you didn't think would hit did. Did that ever happen to you? Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. There are books and projects that I work on that I put out that I expect to get a much bigger reaction than they actually do. And then the reverse is absolutely also true. I think it happens with events too, with like signings and stuff. Like sometimes I'll do a signing and a lot of people show up and sometimes I'll do a signing. Like just last month, I did a signing where three people came. Oh my gosh. Like you don't have control over that. You know what I mean? You don't have control over that because it could be like the weather changes. It could be a sporting event is on TV. It could be a traffic jam. It could be like a host of different things. And you just have to keep plowing. The way it was announced or presented. Mm. Yeah. In the case of this one, it was because... I had two events that were a little bit too close together. 
too physically close together and too close temporally together. And the second event, like the event that I did after that went much better. So I think one cannibalized the other one. But I just think you just never know. And also with the successes, I would say, like, you just don't have full control over that. Like, you don't have full control over the world's reaction to you. Like the way that show got made was completely like winning a lottery ticket. So we had originally signed with FX. And then right before pandemic, FX dropped us. Like they paid for the pilot script to get written and then they dropped us. And we thought the whole thing was going to be dead. We thought it was over. But then one of the producers somehow got a copy of the pilot script to a director named Dustin Cretton who's one of our most talented directors. Dustin read it on his phone and immediately liked it and signed on to do the pilot. And then Dustin has this movie come out called Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, which ended up... Like, I don't know if you remember this, but before that movie came out, people were predicting that it was going to be this huge failure. Right at the tail end of the pandemic, they were predicting that nobody was going to go out to the theaters to watch it. And it overperformed. It performed way better than expected. And because of that, Disney went to Dustin and was like, what's the next project that you want to do? I thought for sure Dustin was going to drop our TV show. Because at that point, he could have done anything he wanted. You know, he could have been like, I want to do a giant budget motion picture about XYZ. But instead, he said, oh, the next thing I want to do is this television show. And that's how we got greenlit. So that was just a series of coincidences that I did not have any control over. And it just kind of happened. I love that story and just how hard you've worked. Gene, is there anything I haven't asked I should have asked? Uh, not that I could think of. Not that I could okay. think of. Yeah, this was for the sake fun. of time. And then I'm going to ask you my final and magical question. And that is, Gene, if you had the magical powers to confer upon all humanity, one insider skill that you believe would dramatically improve the lives of individuals and perhaps even society at large, what would that insight or skill be? And how do you imagine it would affect individuals as well as perhaps even society at large? I'm speaking specifically from the perspective of a cartoonist. Ben, in comics for a very long time now, for over two decades. And I think almost to a person, every cartoonist I know has this little voice in their head that tells them that everything that they do is garbage. And this voice gets extra loud when you're nearing the end of a project. I would say like when you're at the 75% mark, that voice starts getting extra loud. And when I was younger, I would give into that voice And I would move on to another project. I'd be 75% of the way done of something. And then this voice would be like, oh, what you're working on is garbage. There's this other shiny new idea that you should work on instead. And I jump ship. So have a bunch of these half-finished, unfinished projects in my wake. It took me a long time to learn how to ignore that voice and just finish. And what I found is when you finish and you look back, you realize that that voice was lying to you, that your project was never as bad as that voice tells you it is. So the one skill that I would hope everybody has is just the ability to ignore that voice. Get done whatever you're trying to get done. See it to the finish. Yeah, see it to the finish. I think that's brilliant. I remember this one great line from Turk to JD in the TV show Scrubs. And he was actually talking about picking up on girls for JD. He said, you have a lot in common with 7-Eleven. You never close. And what you're saying is when you're writing something, close. Close. That's right. ABC would stand for always be closing in this case. Always be Um, closing. And my goodness, that is so great. And just to borrow from Picasso, I believe he said that art is never finished, only abandoned. And I guess just so blown away by what you've decided to do with your life and the gifts that you've offered to yourself, but in by extension, all humans who get to interact with your art. And you are so cool, so inspiring. It's been such a blast to be with you, Gene. 
Well, thank you, Adam. It's been so fun. Thank you so much for inviting me onto your podcast, for talking. It's been great. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey thanking you for listening to Super Psyched. If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe.